I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers in association with the School of Advanced Study at the University of London. In this special series with global leaders, writers and campaigners, we will be reflecting on more than a year of challenge and change as we ask the question, how has COVID changed us? Today, we're joined by Kenneth Fouquier, Senior Editor of The Economist, host of the weekly technology podcast, Babbage, and best-selling author. His latest book is Framers, Human Advantage in an Age of Technology and Turmoil, of which he is one of its three co-authors. And it has been described by The Economist as an ode to human ingenuity. To tell us more, Ken, welcome to Changemakers. Pleasure to have you on the show. Great to be here. Well, listen, I, I read the book. And I've hugely enjoyed it. If you were to frame us for listeners, tell us a little bit about premise. Absolutely. So everything that we do in every interaction we have and every time we interact with reality, we are applying a mental model. We're generating it and using it in order to interact with the world. We so basic feature of cognition. We're constantly simulating the world mentally in our head, playing the game of life a couple seconds in advance, and then actually acting. But we can take this very basic feature of cognition and turn it into a tool that we can deliberately use to increase the range of choices that we see so we can make better decisions and get better outcomes in the world. And that quiet revolution that's been taking place in cognitive psychology is one that we wanted to emphasize because the only way we are going to solve our most pressing challenges in this world is by effective framing or reframing altogether. I felt that this was a a real pitch to think differently. You sort of raised the trio of causality, counterfactuals and and constraints, I guess, as the the kind of compass point in this. Tell us a little bit more about that that process of thought and what, what the reader can get out of it. Sure. It starts with the very basic question what is framing? What is a frame? What is a mental model? And there, it is an abstraction of the world. It is a representation of the world. If we didn't have a mental model, we would just be besieged with stimuli and experiences and wouldn't know where to put our attention in the same way that if we walked into a noisy bar with a friend, if we weren't paying attention to what that person was saying to us very deliberately, we would just simply be overwhelmed with all of the sounds that we'd have and the sights as well. So frames help us. It avoids and winnows some information in order for us to focus on certain ones. But when you distill what a mental model or frame is, it has these three different features to it. Causality, counterfactuals, and constraints. Causality is a sense of how the world works with cause and effect. It makes the world predictable. It makes the world understandable. Often we are wrong in causality when it comes to things of a scientific nature or what causes one thing versus another. But by and large, we do understand that if we push the glass to the edge of the table, it will fall and smash and the milk will spill. And we interact with causality all the time. The second is counterfactuals. We ask ourselves, what ifs? In fact, we start asking ourselves, what if questions when we are toddlers and we experiment. Parents call it getting into things. When you're older, it's called scientific research. You're constantly posing questions to the world and you're actually generating new models and updating your prior knowledge based on new information because you're constantly asking these these questions. And then finally, it's constraints. We don't live in a world in which we actually can come up with any idea and do simply anything. If we're late for a meeting, we don't imagine that we can levitate across London to get from one place to another. All of our thinking, when it's effective thinking, is constrained thinking. And artists and innovators know that it's through the effective use of constraints that they can actually have their art flourish or their innovation be meaningful innovation. So these three features are critical to good framing. I I love the phrase dreaming with constraints. Libertarian listeners and other sort of freedom seekers may may struggle with that. But there seems to be a certain logic to the idea that it's almost like like a map 
that you're talking about in terms of that frame, I guess. I mean, is, is that is that it or, or is there more to it, do you think? Well, there is there is much more to it because the, the role of constraints is so essential. The architect Frank Gehry, for example, noted that he constantly works with constraints and actually the constraints is where the art is because so much of the work that he needs to do, he has limitations to what he's able to do. And it's working within those limitations that allows him to be different and to think novel things. One classic constraint for an architect is gravity. If you try to avoid that constraint, you will have buildings that will fall down. That doesn't do very well. But other constraints are much more malleable, right? The use of materials that you have. Uh, if you're unable to use a certain material that you'd like as a foundation, try a different one. You might find that you're, that what was a solid structure now is actually one that's much more malleable. You didn't think you could actually apply before. Even to the great libertarians, they should realize that the whole purpose of law is, as it is actually uh, enshrined and carved into stone at Harvard Law School, the wise constraints that make men free. Okay, And it's that paradox, the wise constraints that make men free as a definition of law, which is what we want to focus on, because here that we have to live with that paradox. We are constrained, but by being constrained and by loosening certain constraints and tightening others, we can do different things. And when you look at I guess the the twin characters of technology and turmoil as the kind of the the background to this book. A, a lot of people will say, well, actually, they've broken free of a lot of those those constraints. I mean, is that is that the problem as as you see it that that we actually need to bring them back into a frame, or actually is this the coping mechanism of actually how to how to prosper in that environment? Well, I think that the, it's true that interestingly the con- constraints have changed. One constraint, for example example is let's take sexism and racism great virtues honored in the breach you know in in 1960 1970 1980 in britain or in america if you had boasted of uh, being a sexual predator or had spoken very overtly about racism in a very general public setting not in a sort of private niche setting it would be considered reprehensible but interestingly enough uh, in America, at least, where I'm more familiar with what's going on, that internal constraint that was placed on people in terms of what was permissible and not permissible to be said has has loosened, has broken down to its detriment. Because, of course, the whole purpose of good behavior and that form of virtue is that you don't even need to be virtuous as a person to act virtuous in this world. All you need to do is to imitate virtue, and thereby you actually are being virtuous, even if it's not in the original, in your soul at its origin, just the expression of the expression of not being a racist means that you become not racist, even if in your deepest heart you really are. And of course, what we care about is effects in this world, right? As much as we care about the, the true ground truth of things. And so if we've lost that ability, that internal constraint, for example, here, for people not to say things that are racist, it simply creates a form of intellectual chaos or nihilism where anyone can express anything. And that leads to problems if it is actually an expression of something that denies the rights of others, like racism, which in fact, if you inherently think that certain races are superior to others, that, that is denying others equality. And that clearly couldn't be a, a society that survives for long. And that's the issue that we're facing right now. If there's any good thing, uh, I think there's mostly bad things about what happened with COVID, but if there's any good thing, it has opened our eyes to an environment where a lot of the truths that we thought were actually hard constraints turned out to be soft constraints. And it has enabled us to reimagine many parts of our lives and aspects of society in a very healthy and positive way. 
working from home rather than in an office just seems intuitively right. One of the reasons why the entire world was able to make that shift so seamlessly was not simply because of the digital tools that we had, but because of our practices and our abilities to, to do our work in an independent setting, which I think we were all primed for. I mean, I, I want to get on to the specifics of how COVID is, has changed the nature of the frame in a minute. But before we do that, I mean, one read of the book is that it's the kind of, it's the survival kit for, for people in an era of machines that actually, you know, it's the inability of, of AI and, and technology to frame, which gives us the, the route forward. Another read, of course, is that, you know, we'll be sort of along with the singularity before you know it, sort of the ability of machines to overtake take people's ability to learn. I mean, I mean how, how long does that sort of um, that point of advantage remain, Ken, do you think? I mean, you have to remember, well, you have to ask yourself, well, what is the advantage, right? What is that the human mind does? If the human mind is about memory, how much can I actually physically remember in terms of from its informational quotient well we've already lost of course right we've lost a long time ago the tool was always going to be able to remember more than the human mind was whether the tool was a book or whether the tool was a computer if it's just processing just rote processing for example you know what is the best and and you could even say areas of judgment what is the best way to win at chess which is a question of processing and judgment well of course there too we have lost now we design systems that could win at chess and only win at chess but it couldn't win at knots and crosses or tic-tac-toe, but we're actually, the tools are now overcoming that. But now we're defining intelligence in a very narrow way. Here it is, a situation in which it's a game, a closed information system. There are rules that are knowable that you can't break, and we know exactly what winning looks like. It's a closed information system. That does not actually look like the characteristics of most aspects of life. You know, what do you do when you have a child who needs an operation? terminal disease. It'll extend some life, but it'll actually mean debilitations in life, right? These are difficult issues to do. Can you afford it or not? These questions that are much more subtle, framing can be a very helpful tool, but it need not be just on something personal or emotional like this. In very basic aspects of what we do, the ability to generate a mental model, to transfer information, to generalize and abstract from one domain to another is essential. And these are actually the areas where computers simply cannot do it and artificial intelligence doesn't get you there. And the dirty little secret in AI is that when AI does a very good job of making these questions in in, in terms of judgment and long-term planning, it is because a human being has been there in the background imbuing the system with mental models, with a frame. However, the computer can't change frames on its own. It takes a human being to do that. So it shows that even in an era of where AI will make better decisions than human beings, that's axiomatically true, that we will still need human beings to, to frame, to apply mental models, and to adapt them. Mm -hmm. Well, there was, alongside the machines, uh, I picked out three other cool kind of like characters in 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 the story the rationalist the emotionalist and the, and the consensus seekers as really sort of where challenges to the frame pick, pick up the story for us there ken in terms of like you know that their part in the script absolutely so we're at a strange time in world history in which we have these two countervailing forces one we'll call the hyper rationalists which are the ones that say human judgment is so imperfect and so inherently flawed that we should give many of the decisions that humans have been making and making badly over to the machine to do better. Whether it is districting for voting, you know, humans have shown that they're filled with biases. So we should actually have, we shouldn't gerrymander, we should have the voting systems being done by an algorithm. But whether it's detecting cancer, 
a noisy problem where human beings can see certain patterns, but it depends on how smart the doctor happens to be and how attentive they are. Have they had a break, a coffee break before? Because we know that actually these sorts of features, whether it's late in the day or early in the day, affect the, the judgment that they have and the decisions that they make. So get rid of all of it, right? Particularly when it comes to questions of public policy, you know, the, the algorithm can be less biased than the individual and the algorithm can come up with better answers in terms of the judgments, more accurate, quicker, more reliable, and certainly more consistent answers than human beings. So we should get rid of the human being and pull them out of the process as much as possible, whether it's education, whether it's e-commerce, it's all of a piece. On the other hand, we have another countervailing force that we'll call the emotionless. And you see this in the expression of populism around the world, whether it's the Bolsonaro in Brazil, whether it's Donald Trump in America, or even our dear Boris Johnson, the prime minister of the United Kingdom, that there's a sense that this the hyper-rational way is just like brainy smurf, and it loses an authenticity. As as Michael Gove said, a government minister, you know, the public's fed up with, you know, with, with the eggheads, with experts from three-letter agencies. So they want to return to a simpler time where decisions were made from the from the gut, from the emotion, from what feels to be right. You know, Boris Johnson shaking the hands of COVID patients at the outset of of the of the pandemic because he just felt like this is what it was what a politician should do, denying centuries of medical science and 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 public safety in a pandemic. Between those two forces, we argue that in fact both of them have it wrong. We shouldn't just give up on the role of mental models and and forming our cognition to 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 determine and place reason at the heart of what we do, as the emotionalists want to do, and the populists are denying facts. Nor do we should we go to the to the other extreme and try to get rid of people altogether. We should double down on what human beings do well and do well already, which is we're very good decision makers because we can frame. But but your answer, certainly from the reading of the book, is that consensus is not the answer either. That you know, coming together and converging on on a common perspective. It, it doesn't feel like like the middle way is is your way forward between the rationalist and the emotionalist either. I'm so glad you brought it up because that's exactly right. This idea that we all need to agree itself is a not only is it wrong, but it actually creates the problems that we're trying to solve. What we advocate in the book is for pluralism. We want a clash, a constructive, respectful. Um, good faith interaction between different frames, between different ways of thinking about the problem in order to generate new answers and solve some of our problems. So let's take the issue of Brexit. I thought it was kind of, I, I'm a visitor to this debate because I'm, a, I'm an American in the United Kingdom. And I watched at the outset, and I'm also a free thinking kind of person. That's sort of who I am. So I watched at the outset as the rise of this sense of that the EU is the problem of the Britain, that Britain should, should leave the EU. And it was interesting that the reaction on the other side wasn't to actually admit fault in the EU and say, and roll your eyes and say, Oh yeah, you know, um, <laughs> you guys are so right. It is such a pathetic situation. On the other hand, we don't really see a better outcome. And if you can come up with one, let's do it. But leaving wasn't the right answer. Instead, they, the remain side, the tribe, if you will, dug in their heels and tried to defend the EU at all costs, whether rather than admit the shortcomings and work constructively to figure out, well, what is the best way forward for the country? That to me was peculiar because, of course, I kind of felt like truth was somewhere in the middle where you'd say like, yeah, we probably should reassess our relationship with an organization. What should it be like? What fits the needs of all the people? How Where are the areas that we can agree on? 
if that form of constructive clash and conversation, but I emphasize constructive, not clash like Fox News clash or Twitter troll clash, but I'm talking about a true integration of ideas, of good faith, of of me respecting that I value your opinion and your way of seeing the world, I'm not going to deny. I will accept the fact that I don't have all the truth myself, that how you see the world, your answers I can might say is wrong, but I can't say what's wrong is how you see the world, how you perceive, or I can say it might not fit, but it's not, it should not not be allowed to exist. I will respect how you see the world. You respect how I see the world. And now let's have a conversation and let's try to come up with solutions to our answers. Because it, it feels like one read of this book is that, you know, it, it is a it is a plea for independent thinking. You know, you talk about the corporate Cassandras in, in, in the book, the people that, you know, are going to look at things, do things differently. And part of that is, I, I guess, the ability to reframe the questions and not just slavishly follow a particular line. But of course, the reality in, in life, of course, as, you, as you'll know, is that sometimes if your only answer is a yes or no one, then, then the ability to frame it differently becomes quite difficult. The, bi- the binary systems really feel to me like an artifact of an earlier era in which I don't think our our answers ever fit neatly into yes or no, but it wasn't so starkly improper to the problems that we had. If you have very simplistic questions, a yes or no answer probably is good enough. If your problems are complex, they certainly are not going to be good enough. So you would want actually some degree of granularity. If you frame, it's how you frame the question. So if you frame the Brexit debate as in in or out, of course, one side is just going to feel jilted. If you have a range, a menu of of eight different options, a cognitively meaningful set, because if you have 80 or 800, it wouldn't be meaningful. But let's say if you had seven different options or five, which is a classic number in, in what's called ranked preference voting systems, which does away with that binary system. If you did that, suddenly people could choose and you might find that, in fact, there was a, a great tendency, a great majority of the population wanted to reframe and re and reassess and readjust the relationship between the country and, and, and the question of the European Union. But it wouldn't be a, a simplistic in or out in which both sides feel jilted. In fact, interestingly enough, many of the people who voted to leave feel like they were hard done by because they voted for leave under one set of circumstances that they would, they would stay within the European economic area, only to find out that, in fact, it was a hard exit, which they weren't planning on because different people said different things at different times. Let's move on. I mean, you mentioned complex questions. Let's move on to one of, you know, the other big complex questions of our time, which is COVID. And we are addressing the question of, of how how has COVID changed us? You raise it in the book, and we'll get on to that. But provide a more personal frame for us in terms of how how has COVID changed you, Ken, and, and the way that you, you frame the world right now? Such a good question. I'm still actually figuring that out, to be perfectly honest. I mean, when you've lived through a trauma, it's not obvious. You can't just simply brush yourself off and say, hey, you know, here's what I've learned from it. I think I'm still in it. Uh, I think the whole world is still in it to sort of help you frame I went to my first public meeting where I was actually in a room with other people last week, which was a mid-June since March 2020. So uh, uh, basically a year and, and three months. So I was very, I've been very cautious of that. And the, the system, of course, was very interesting in terms of how it was set up to make sure that everyone was 
very um was very well protected. So I do have a sense that we're coming out from underneath something, but I do feel that we're all still extremely traumatized by the experience on a personal level. For those people who are introverts, I think at the outset this was a beautiful thing. I think very quickly it probably came quite hellish because they couldn't even get that small dose that they relied on of interaction with people who really mattered. For people who are extroverted, it was actually quite hard for people I know very close to me, people who are extroverts who couldn't do what they did. Um, I've Interestingly, I found as a professional, I was failing everywhere I looked. I couldn't, I couldn't understand. Was it because I was spending so much time with my children as, you know, helping to homeschool them? It wasn't that. Uh, what was it until I realized that what I do at The Economist is a little bit different than what other people do. I don't fit into the exact same mold as a typical correspondent. I'm editor of a section that's a new section that relies on doing things in a new way, not in the way that has been done for 175 years. It means that to be successful in my job, I need to use a lot of social capital. I didn't realize this until a year and a half later, looking back just several months ago, that I looked back and I just realized, oh, now I see why I'm screwing up left, right, and center. The, the way I got things done before was to walk into people's office, lean on their door frame, and in two minutes, explain what I was doing, explain what I needed from them, usually for them to look the other way, hold their nose, and let me get on with my work because what I was doing wasn't going to look like the classic Economist article. And if I couldn't do that, if I had to schedule a Zoom meeting to have a two-minute interaction with someone, it was stale, it was sterile, they knew it didn't look like it was like catching them at the coffee counter. They knew that this was a deliberate attempt for me to get something from, extract it. It didn't really work. Right. Have you managed to master the new medium? I mean, you know, you, you're, you're living in a, a world of change, not all of which, obviously, by the sounds of it, you particularly like. Have you, have you found ways to frame those challenges, the things that haven't been working in, in more positive ways? I have. You know, there was one th- I I was facing a, a difficult issue at work, just office politics again, because I, because you're not there, it's hard to get goodwill and to sort of use your social capital and 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 often things through the intermediary of the of the computer doesn't land quite right. And so when I realized that this was happening, I was just stewing on it, and it dawned on me about a year ago that I was making a huge mistake that I was spending my evenings and mornings working on this book called Framers. And then ignoring all the things I was writing about and, and, and interacting in this old school way in my nine to five job. I said, well, why don't you take a page from the book, learn from it and apply the book to your job, which is what I did. So I thought very deliberately about, you know, the situation and thought about it in terms of its causality. What was going on? You know, what, you know, what, what did I know for sure? What did I not know? I thought about counterfactuals. What if this? What if that? Is And then I thought about constraints. Is this really the case? Wouldn't that person budge there? What is that person's interest? By doing so, I could actually imagine, I saw that I had a lot more options and alternatives than I initially saw. And then I could actually turn the situation around, which is what I did. From all of this, the one lesson I learned was this idea of mental rehearsals or visualizations. I had sort of known that high-performance athletes like ski jumpers, you know, would do the training jump, you know, 50,000 times in their mind, or Israeli fighter pilots very famously will run the mission tens of thousands of times in their mind, every single second of it, so that what when they're there for the real one, that they can perform at their highest level. But I didn't think it was something that I could do. I realized that that was actually quite wrong. That in fact, and I since learned that great you know, business executives and others are doing just this. So now I actually apply the idea of mental rehearsals as often as I can in lots of different domains, including interacting with a child. You know, well, what do you do? How do you do this? And then when you're in the moment, it turns out 
you have a lot more confidence because it's not the end of one problem. Here I am for the first time doing something. You feel like you're experienced. Mm -hmm. I mean, and when you think about, I mean, that's obviously a very positive one about how you make sometimes your your poorest moments, your best moments, all those sorts of like, I guess, coping strategies. But when you look at the question of the longer term change, some people are calling this the kind of warm up act for the digital age, you know, that actually we're, we're going to have to get used to a lot of things that are very different than, than the kind of pre-COVID age. One of those, I guess, is the way we interact and work together. I mean, how do you see it in terms of the what comes next in terms of, you know, the hope that we do move sometime in the next sort of 12 to 18 months into an environment where COVID becomes more of a rear view mirror issue, but the consequences become things that we are very much dealing with. I mean, is, is, there, a, is there a frame for that? I mean, how, how would you frame it? So uh, these are great questions. The, I, would, I would challenge some of the assumptions, right? If, we, if the idea that COVID is something that will happen to us and that we'll get past might actually be the wrong frame, right? That's, that feels a little bit like a war, right? We, we have, you know, we declare war, we fight the war, we have a peace treaty, and then we get on with our lives. It's, it's back. It's never exactly status quo, but it's back. But what if it's the forever war, the forever virus in this case? What if we're constantly battling it? It's always mutating. Some mutations are worse than others. We constantly need booster shots and booster vaccines. There's always going to be some people that don't want it. That's going to lead to more vaccinations. There's always going to be a long-term toll on the on the healthcare system for it. Masks and indoor settings are always going to have a problem. You you wouldn't ever dare go into a, just as you wouldn't go into an office without heating or air conditioning in the summer heating. You wouldn't go into a, into an environment that you couldn't actually feel in your fingertips a ventilation of air to know that the air was circulating very well. That it was you would never just as we go through. A, a body scanner or an x-ray machine to get onto an airplane to make sure you're not carrying an explosive that you go through the same sort of system, but it's a biosensing system to make sure that you're, you have no, you're not carrying any pathogens. If that's the case, this becomes an, an endemic situation. What we will have learned, which is good, is that we have more possibility to change things in our world than we thought we did. So in economics, we're going through an incredibly interesting national, natural experiment right now. We had always thought that if you just handed out trillions of dollars to people, that it would just blow a hole in the finances and inflation would run rampant. But what we've learned since is that, in fact, you can give away trillions upon trillions of dollars in stimulus checks and, and actually have the economy be manageable, right? That was interesting. We didn't actually really know that before. Right. A lot of regulatory forbearance, you know, outdoor dieting in the streets of Manhattan. All of these are very positive things where there's been a failure, though, interestingly, has been in the idea of long term planning and and the idea of a stitch in time saves nine. You would think that if we've just spent trillions of dollars in stimulus checks, that we'd be willing to spend a few billion dollars on a global surveillance system against the next pathogen. You would be wrong. It turns out it's actually easier to spend, to blow a hole in your finances and spend trillions of dollars, right, than it is to get politicians to come up with reasonable strategies today. So one read of it then is that this is the unwinnable war and therefore you create a very different set of tools to cope. But in that environment, what's the social change? What's the human experience change to something where I guess, you know, if you read the kind of 
you know, the day-to-day news flow, the the way it is portrayed is very much that this is the war where, you know, we have Freedom Day or however you choose to caricature, uh, caricature the, the various political statements. But there is a sense that the prevailing logic is that it is a kind of binary move from we are at war and then we have peace. What's the social change that actually changes this to actually this is just something we're going to have to live with, to use that much, much, much quoted phrase? I don't th- I struggle to answer that question because that's such a difficult question to answer. Let me try to answer an easier one that you didn't ask or maybe pose it and ask. Yeah, well, it's a Daniel Kahneman. Daniel Kahneman talked about a cognitive bias in which, when you're faced with a difficult question, you end up answering an easier one. And so, um, let me let me avail myself willingly of that cognitive bias to say, the difficulty I'm trying to to under, to answer that question, you need to understand something else. And the thing you need to understand, which I have struggled with, is how people can deny what I consider commonsensical features of reality. So. Um, wearing a mask during a pandemic or even getting a vaccine to me seems quite logical how people could think that that wouldn't be right. Often, you know, one in 10 healthcare providers don't actually want to get vaccinated. That seems to be very strange. I mean, I just, I just, I, I really struggle with understanding it. I, I'm very frightened by it because I think it's a form of intellectual nihilism that leads to gas chambers, to be blunt, to sort of, to, to drop the H-bomb uh, maybe too soon. I think about it, of course, because if, if we want to use COVID as an as an as a prelude to something it's clearly to climate change in which you can clearly see the same contours of the problem the importance of long ter- of of long term planning of taking small steps early on of reacting at an early stage rather than uh, at a later stage and i look at the at all the people running and doing great physical fitness for their bodies uh in london in the parks and you think about how great that is on a personal level, that they're going to have a great end of life experience or a better end of life experience than their fathers and their grandparents because of the exercise that they're getting. But why we don't translate that basic knowledge of, of taking steps today to mitigate the reality that we will see in the future. We didn't do that when it came to COVID prior to the pandemic, even though all the warnings had been there from experts. We're not doing that now against either the next pandemic or even mutations of COVID. And then you look at something like climate change and you have to pull out your hair and ask yourself, how is it that we're denying the reality of climate change, even if the science isn't 100% certain, although it's 99.999% certain, but be that as it may, there's certainly things we could do now to protect our earth, right? That and and the livability of our experience, and yet we're not doing that. How how is that possible? Do, do you think that that part of the answer to that question lies into the, the the frame is essentially one of pragmatism? And I'm just thinking as you're speaking is that you know if you look at the um, the G7 meeting, which we're we're just off the back of, is that we know we need 11 billion doses to vaccinate the world and we and we commit to to 1 billion which, which feels like the the pragmatic answer i mean what changes the frame for us to live up to the nature of the challenge do you think so i i am trying to understand that myself because of course the cost is so little right so the, let, let's talk 
specifically, the AstraZeneca vaccine, which doesn't need to be refrigerated, costs $7 per dose. Okay, it's on a cost recovery basis. That's what it costs to manufacture. That doesn't include transport costs. That's just buying the dose. But the transport costs could be minuscule, right? You can deliver an Amazon book into the Sahara. So that's not a problem. So at the outset of the vaccinations, I was actually in a group interview with Bill Gates with The Economist. And I was going to ask him the question of, hey, have you thought about just buying a vaccine dose? for everyone on planet Earth, having the foundation do that. I didn't ask him that question because I thought it was just sort of kind of laughable. I thought he'd just simply say, look, it's $7 per You'll be around $7 a dose. That's within the means of every single you know country in the world to buy. But even if America or any other country was to do it, we're really talking a very low number, right? So it's quite ironic and just kind of befuddling why we're unable to do this. What will it take to change people's decisions? I think we cannot rely on the rational part of how human beings make decisions. We've, we do know too much information that human beings don't do well when it comes to pure rationality. It has to be done on the emotional level. It can't be done on the humanist level. I don't think it can be done on a sense of the greatness and beauty of, of of doing something beyond oneself. I don't think everyone responds to that. I think those people who are feel virtu, virtuous respond to that and then write books about it. And other people who are virtuous read about it and then proclaim it. I don't think it's that either. But it's a nut that we have not cracked. I do not know what it will take to get people to reframe their minds, to actually take steps to protect the earth, protect their own lives and their loved ones by wearing a mask. Until we suss this out, this, this the mystery of our minds uh, and, and our decision-making, I think we're, we're, we are stuck. Because, you know, we, we're moving towards the, sort of like the final minutes of the interview. And, I, and naturally, I try and find a, a positive way to end it. But, you know, when I, when I look at, you know, how you see the year 2025, you, you, you know, you wrote recently of, of, of a shopping list of pretty big issue challenges from economic crises, less global trade, constant international political conflict, you know, a, a whole range of issues and challenges to do with extremism. I suppose it does come back to this point that I suppose that this might well be the new the new book, Ken. I mean, wh- when do we actually wake up and smell the coffee? So we do know that in times of, of absolute crisis and deprivation, people are able to change, right? Uh, they're very optimistic. But in, in the depths of despair, old ways of doing things go out the door and people adopt to new ways of doing things. You know, the joke in academia is that paradigm shift one funeral at a time. The scientist doesn't actually change their mind. The scientist that believed one thing and not another thing has to actually perish off the face of this earth for the new paradigm, in this case, new scientific method to actually to go forward. So do we have to wait for such a calamity? I hope not. You know, I, I, Arnold Toynbee, the historian, referred to the creative minority that was there to save a civilization if it is to be saved at all. And Toynbee was a melancholic historian, so always added that little rejoinder. And I, I invoke that because I think that, that it is in the balance. I, it's, I feel like there's something precious that is in the balance, unlike at any other point in my lifetime. That is my grandfather's battle. He was a Frenchman who had to leave France and raise his family in America to avoid the Nazis. And so I feel that I was very complacent for most of my life by feeling that his battle was his battle and mine was a different one. 
and was was not those were different stakes. But I've realized in the last four years that that wasn't the case whatsoever. In fact, it's the same battle that we have to fight. The good guys have to fight over again. I really took it from the book as well that this is not just this is not just post writing it, but the idea of of being in the balance very much comes across in in the book as well in terms of you know a matter of survival for humanity in a time of societal upheaval and upheaval and machine prosperity you raise about. So final question, Ken, is that on the dust cover of the book, the musician entrepreneur Will I Am talks about that. Well, actually, this is the route towards the age of humanity. If you were to look at that as as being the kind of the goal, the kind of the you know, are, are there things that could help us reframe this? Are there tools? Are there other ideas that you'd share with us to sort of leave us with in terms of what makes that more likely? Absolutely, there are, and that's there is there is optimism and good news. And the good news is that is that we are good at making decisions, and we can get better at it. And what we can strive for isn't simply diversity, but pluralism. The idea that we can come together, respect each other, learn from each other, and create something new together. That one can have a mental model and someone else can have a legitimate mental model that's different. And unless we accept that difference and that we're going to try to integrate these ideas or let one supersede another because no one person is the fount of all that is and can be in this world, that that we all have cognitive blinkers on and we will need each other in order to come up with good answers to our problems, that is the benefit that this this idea of having a multiplicity of frames of mental models that are diverse that respect other people and that can all intermingle and we can choose the right one so my great hope is the great hope of pluralism well what a great place to leave it ken kike thank you very much thank you michael this was a lot of fun i really appreciate it changemakers is brought to you by the campaigns firm seven hills and presented by me michael Heyman. pure being is the name of our soundtrack and it's written and performed by the brilliant bt wolf To find out more, head over to changemakers.works and if you like what you hear, why not give us a rating?